you doing? This is Brian Smith with Leon. I have Josh Koshu here from the Tampa Bay Rays. No longer Devil Rays, right? They're just nope, the Rays? We're just the Rays now. Just the Rays. Okay, yep. cool. You are a mental performance coach uh, for the team, correct? Correct. Not the big league club, minor leagues, AAA, AA. So almost there, but not quite. Well, fantastic. If you could, how did you get to where you are today? And it's interesting coming from a sports science background. There's so many different avenues that you can take with working with professional athletes. And I think we all have a passion for that. But what made you get into sort of the mental side of things? And then why baseball? Yeah, the biggest reason I got into the mental side was because I struggled with the mental side. And when I was a player, I played college baseball, never was good enough to play professionally. But it was something that I struggled with. And when I was a catcher. So one of my biggest issues was, I think it was like my freshman year, I had problems throwing the ball back to the pitcher. The easiest thing to possibly do in baseball is to just throw the ball back to the pitcher. Couldn't do it. And I would short hop them or throw it over it. And it became just this huge mental block. And I struggled, but I never had anybody to go to or anybody to talk to. The only people that I would discuss it with was typically coaches. And they'd just tell me, what is wrong with you? And then they would yell at you. And then next, and then you just start spiraling downwards and it leads to lack of sleep, lack of eating, and just this whole, I don't want to say depression because it wasn't full out depression, but it was just not a good time. And eventually I got out of it just by working through it. But as a, once I finished my college career, I said, okay, I want to give back more. I want to help out. So I got involved with coaching and I was coaching high school kids and coaching summer balls and doing stuff like that. But we never really talked much about mechanical stuff. We always talked about your approach or what you're thinking up at the plate or what you're thinking on the mound and uh, had some life events happen. And I was working a job I didn't really enjoy. And actually I hated it. And I was just like, okay, this, I need to do something different. So I heard about sports psychology and what do you do when you hear something new? You go to Google. So I typed in sports psychology and looked it up and I was like, oh my God, I'm already doing a lot of this stuff with players. I didn't know there was like legit curriculum and science behind this. So I said, this is me, this is what I need to do. And, and I was thinking when I said, baseball, it's such a need, let's get into baseball. And then I started contacting people who worked in baseball and ended up going to school at Barry University down in Miami to get my master's degree in, in sports psychology. And after that, I was fortunate enough to start an internship with the New York Mets. and. Basically, I just kind of worked my way up through the system very similar to a player would do. So I started at the short season level. The next year I was brought back and I did low A and then the next year was double A and triple A. And then last year I was there and did triple A and oversaw our whole system. But throughout that experience, it was just, I learned how there's such a need for the mental side, not only in sports, but for in players, but for coaches for people outside of sports and how these skills that I'm teaching players is applicable in all aspects of life. So that's a, a quick rundown of the journey. I could talk for a while about it, but yeah, that's a pretty good overview there. No, that was great. Thank you. The way I look at what you do, you ever see the show Billions by any chance? Yeah. Are you Wendy Rhodes? Yeah, but not as intense and <laughs> Okay. Some of her stuff is a little unethical. We'll put it that way. But yeah, um, pretty similar type of role. Okay, so on your day-to-day -day basis, like what does that look like? So when you walk into the clubhouse, um, it, are the players setting appointments with you? Do you have a calendar? What does that whole process look like? Yeah, so for me, typically it's more informal. I walk into the clubhouse and just check in with guys. So how it works for us and what we do is 
like I said, I cover triple A, double A. So you're bouncing around. You're not with that team 24 seven. So I'll be there for say a week and then I'll come back in another week or 10 days. And so you, you'll leave these guys and go to another team. So if guys have a need when you're not there, you can text, call, whatever it might be. But when I am there, like I said, it's very informal. You go in, you check in with the managers, coaches, you go around the players, just say hello, see how things are going. But then where I really have the most impact, I feel, is once we get out on the field. So in baseball, there's a lot of downtime. We'll get to the field, say it's a 7 o'clock game. You'll be there at 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, just getting your work in, getting your body ready. But guys will be sitting around, BSing, eating food, whatever it might be. And we'll do a lot of just talking there. And most of the time, it's just, hey, man, how you doing? Like, last time I checked, you said you were going to be getting married. How's your fiance doing? And, and stuff like that. And then when we're out on the field, I'll be walking around during batting practice. Guys are in the outfield shagging, so we'll just talk out there. I'll play catch with guys. It's very laid back kind of way of doing things. And I think it helps make the players feel more comfortable and it breaks that stigma of, oh my God, I have to set an appointment with this guy. I have to go lay on a couch and tell him how I feel for 35 minutes. And then we get out. If somebody wants to do that, we'll go grab lunch or we'll go to Starbucks or we'll do something like that outside of the field. But for the most part, most of the work is done at the field or we'll go sit in the stands or there's times throughout the games where guys will come up to you and they'll just be like, hey, man, I'm really struggling. What can I do? And you just have to be available. You have to be out there. You have to be around. I'm not the type of guy to just go sit in an office and wait for people to come to me. I'll go reach out to them or, or just be around them. And eventually the conversations will spring up. Okay, so the, I have a question regarding you guys are getting there at 12, 1 o'clock. So for a 7 o'clock start, I imagine each player, the way they prepare for a game during those certain amount of hours is, is very specific to a certain extent, right? Because I imagine with how long your the schedule is that it's important for each player to develop a routine, but a developer routine that fits within their why or their purpose or really their mindset, right? Like you can have one player who bashes his head up against a, a locker to vamp itself up and another one who just sits there and, and meditates. So how do you walk, how do you help an athlete or person in general understand how they prepare mentally for performance so to me there's like you said everybody's different right but it comes down to individual zones of optimal functioning izof is what it's called and it's a bell-shaped curve and it basically says that for you to be able to perform at your best you need to be in the middle of that curve not everybody falls in the middle of that curve to be able to perform at their best so i'll ask guys when you perform it, what does it take for you to be at your best? Are you on a scale of one to 10? Where are you typically at as far as like being aroused, like being, being amped up? And some guys will be at a two or three. Some guys will be at, oh man, I need to get really jacked up. I need to bang my head against the locker. I need to be at an eight or nine. So that's where we'll start a lot of times. It's just like, where, where are you when you've had your best games and where are you at when you've had your worst games? And that kind of gives us a scale. And then what we'll do is we'll build out that routine from there. So say it's, Say it's an eight. I need to be at an eight. I need to be amped up when I get out there. Okay, cool. Now, you can't be at an eight at 12, one o'clock. We want to build that up as the day progresses. So maybe you come into the field and you're at a three. You're super chill. You're listening to just relaxing music. You get in the gym. You get, a, you get that heart rate going a little bit. You get to that four or five. We get out on the field. We take BP. You start to feel a little bit better. You're at a five or six. You know, we have another two hours before game time, so you want to chill back out. So we'll 
go eat, knock that bag down to three or four, listen to relaxing music, and then say that game is at seven o'clock. Come six, six twenty, we'll turn up that music. We'll start getting hyped up. Start listening to different types of things. Start talking to people in the way that you want to get yourself amped up. Hang around those types of people that also need to be at that seven or eight level. And then by the time seven o'clock comes in that first pitch, you should be ready to go. So that's an example of somebody that's at that level. The opposite level, we could do the exact opposite, I guess. We try to stay a little bit more mellowed out. Um, and in baseball, it's tough too because it's a three, three and a half hour game a lot of times. So it's, it's very tough to ask somebody to be at that really high eight level for the whole time. So it's okay. Let's be at an eight for your at-bats. And then in between pitches or in between when we come in the dugout, let's tone it down a bit and then bring it back up. So it's a constant dialogue that you need to be having with these players. And it starts with that relationship. Like we have to have really tight relationships. Otherwise, this doesn't mean anything. Numbers won't mean anything. This IZOF doesn't mean anything if, if we can't talk this through and you can't tell me how you were feeling in that moment. So it always comes back to relationships for me. But when we talk about building routines and how I do it, that's a little bit of a look under the hood there. And I think this question would really apply to our population, right? Where if, if I'm a salesperson and I'm walking into a big pitch or if I'm a manager walking into some sort of presentation, I don't really have eight hours or five hours to get to that eight. So what type of strategies have you seen or used in the past with either yourself or teammates, which allow you to get to that state in a, in a much quicker way? Mm -hmm. The the biggest thing probably is breathing exercises. So just getting yourself to be in that present state, because when we're focused on either the past or the future, it's really tough to get into that flow state, which flow state, if, if you've ever felt it or, Maybe when you give that sales pitch, you just knocked it out of the park. Like you were in the zone, like it, you don't even know what happened. It just went by and you crushed it. That's what that flow state is like. And for hitters, for pitchers, it's just like this amazing feeling of just euphoria. And, and it's just, you, you're not even thinking about what you're doing. Your body's just reacting and, and you're just so focused on that present moment. But the only way that you can get into that present moment is through a lot of times breathing exercises. So I, I like to use the breath as an anchor for people. I like to think of it as, okay, when you notice your mind starting to speed up or maybe you're not where you need to be, come back to your breath. Your breath will allow you to be present in this moment because the breath is always there. It's something that we take for granted, but if we can focus on that and we can do different types of breathing techniques, which there's many different types of exercises and being able to check in body scans and stuff like that, but that's probably the, the first place I'll start with people is just like some sort of breathing exercises. There's different apps out there that, that do this. I know Headspace is one of them where it's, it's a five or 10 minute meditation app and you just jump in, you do your meditation, you're good. And does it always mean that when you do these breathing exercises and meditations that you're going to get into that flow state? No, but what it does is it allows you to have your best chance to have success to get into those states as opposed to just going in willy-nilly just taking chances that's one of the ways to do it another way to get yourself in positions where you can have success is to visualize it visualize what that's going to look like when you go in and give a presentation try to prepare as best as possible prepare as far as what is my presentation going to be what am i going to talk about what is the setup going to be have i practiced have i done all of this stuff and then visualize yourself going through it actually practice it so those are probably two of the biggest things i would consider moving forward with 
how to prepare in a short amount of time is breathing and visualization. Yeah, uh, totally. The flow state is such an interesting thing to me because it's weird because when you're there, you don't know you're there until after the fact. And then you yes. look back on it and you're like, holy shit, like, <laughs> you know, I was completely dialed in. I, I feel like flow state from a general population standpoint is hard because within an athlete perspective or a military perspective or whatever have you, right? Like those type of people are constantly, they're dialed in and every are confident about their preparation, either physical or mental. They're probably, they're, they're confident about the strategical aspects of it all, right? Mm-hmm. So how important is it for an individual to achieve that level of flow state for them to be prepared to, or have the right to get into a flow state? Does that make sense? Yeah, so the the one thing I would caution is just you don't have to be in flow state in order to perform at your best. It just helps to be there. So yeah. don't think that, oh, my God, I'm not in this zone. I'm not like this thing that Josh is talking about, just being super locked in. I don't feel that. So I'm going to blow this presentation. No, that's not what I'm, I'm trying to say here. It's just when we're in those flow states, which are very tough to get into to begin with, I do want to say that they're very tough to get into. When we are in those, we have the best chance to succeed. And even when you're in that flow state, you still might not. A guy might be in flow state and go 0 for 4 with three strikeouts, but he'll say, man, I felt really locked in today. So you still might not have the results. But it gives you, again, the best chance to have that success. But you can do that, like I said, through the breathing techniques, through the visualizations. And, yes, they won't always put you in there. But, again, that's how you give your best chance. Does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. And I'm glad you brought up, like, the sort of the breathing application of that. Because and we're going to segue a little bit into burnout right now. Burnout is, is very, it's a very big topic right now, especially within the sort of the state of the world and what's going on. My background is in the physiological aspects of burnout and what we look at from an autonomic nervous system standpoint, from a blood testing standpoint, and how to predict overtraining and burnout within professional athletes. But if you could touch on the, the sort of the traits and the symptoms that for an overtrained or burnt out athlete from a psychological standpoint, just so our sort of managers and leaders that listen to this podcast can have some sort of insight of what to look for within their, within their organization. Yeah, so typical traits that I've seen from players that are burnout, even coaches. I also want to say, too, burnout happens. You can be the most, you can be the best player on that team. Come July and August, you're still getting exhausted from the, the signs of a long season. So burnout's always going to happen regardless of what you do. So I just wanted to throw that in there first. But what are signs of it? So for me, it's getting to the field right at, if we have to be there at 12, they're getting there at 11.58, 11.59. Like they're just pushing it. There's no any sort of extra effort. How they carry themselves around their teammates, their body language, those types of things, very aware of that. A lot of guys will just start to go through the motions or they'll just, they might skip things or they might, their workouts might start to get laxed a little bit. Like when they're in the gym, maybe they're not putting up the amount of reps that they need to be putting up or when they're doing their sprint work, they're not doing that or They have to get in the training room, but they're late getting into the training room. So just their habits, the way that they carry themselves and the habits and things that they do. Now, if you're watching your employees, if you're watching your players from the very beginning, you can get a pretty good idea of their habits. And then when you, when the season progresses, you'll notice when those things start to change. So when you see your employees habits start to change, that's when it's like a red flag or just a 
ding goes off in your head of, hey, something's something might be going on with this person. Maybe I should check in with them and, and see how they're doing or see what's going on. I think that's probably the biggest things that, that I'll look for with players. And then just through conversations with me in my role, it'll come up. As far as like other coaches and I can't imagine managers, it if, if an employee is burnt out, they're probably not going to go tell their manager, hey, I'm burnt out. Like I'm struggling right now. So for me, I'm able to have those conversations with people and they'll say, man, I'm, I need a couple of days off or I'm just, I can't wait till it gets to the end of the season. So just following their habits, seeing how they're acting, seeing how they're interacting with their other employees, doing things like that. Those are probably some of the biggest things that I'll look for when it comes to the burnout. And I love the, the idea that you brought up that burnout happens, right? Because it happens with everybody in every organization. And burnout, at least in my opinion, is not necessarily inherently bad, as long as it's not a, a chronic thing. From a, a team perspective or a company perspective, how, what do you think is ways that companies can look at potentially stressing out their employees, but allowing that recovery time, either if it's physiological or psychological, whatever that is, like, do you have any strategies to help companies understand as far as how they should be backing off their employees during stressful times and what they can possibly do? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is to first off have awareness of when you're creating stressful times. Um, a lot of times we don't recognize that we are putting stress on other people. And by the way that we're carrying ourselves, by the way that we're talking to our employees, by the way that we're asking or demanding certain things to be done. So take a look in the mirror first and be aware of what you're doing to create that possible stress. I think that's probably the first step. Once you've done that and you've recognized when you're doing it, think about that person or people that you've stressed out and find ways to reward them for what they've gone through or what they've done. And it doesn't, and I'm not saying monetarily or days off, but just give them a little bit of credit in front of the group, have a meeting, send an email out, do something that's going to be different than what you've normally done to show that, Hey, I recognize that this was a really difficult task, that this was a really difficult ask that I had of you. And I appreciate it. When you show appreciation and you show gratitude for people, I think that goes such a long ways. And it also helps that person recognize, Hey, I did all this. And my efforts didn't go unnoticed. Even if it was just a simple, thank you. Gratitude is so powerful. So gratitude is what I'll talk about just a lot with players of being thankful for what you have and, and staff as well. But I think as managers of, of employees, being thankful for what they're doing to help you achieve your goals. Because as a manager, as a leader of a group, you have specific goals that, in, that you need to achieve too. But you need these people, you need these employees that work with you for you to be able to achieve those. Without their help, you won't be able to do it. So you need to also be able to show that appreciation for them. So that's what I would probably share with most is just show gratitude for, for, for your people. Um, realize that they have lives too outside of work and that they also have other stresses outside of what you are stressing them out with. So just be thankful for them. Be thankful for their time and what they've given to it. And by doing that, just watch and see how your employees start to respond. And then the next time you have a, another tough ask or a really difficult thing that pops up, watch how they respond and watch how maybe they respond even quicker the next time because they got that positive feedback. They felt that gratitude. They knew that they were appreciated by the people that were in charge of them. So just take, just start to practice that and see how that culture, that attitude shifts throughout. 
Yeah, and I, I love that concept. You talked about awareness. <clears throat> you know, awareness as far as how people experience stress and how individuals experience stress and how they handle the stress is really important, especially when you're managing a group of people. What sort of leads into this concept of resiliency? Now, I know within the, the mental aspect of everything, resiliency is like a big buzzword right now. You know, but resiliency to a certain extent is really mis it, not misunderstood, but it's early times for understanding resiliency from a physiological and a psychological standpoint. And there's a lot of things that go into resiliency. So I guess my question is, can managers and leaders build a resilient organization? All right, and is that possible understanding all the different things that go into resiliency? If that's epigenetics or genetics or childhood trauma, like all these other things that go into building a resilient individual. Is that possible? And then if it is or it isn't possible, what are some strategies to help individuals like myself or yourself become more resilient? Uh, great question. And there's a lot of factors that play into resiliency. Like you said, epigenetics, the culture that people were raised in. But we always go back to controlling what you can control. And as managers, I think that you can have some impact on developing resiliency in the workplace. Now, this resiliency might not help that person outside of work, but I think you can create that culture of whatever your hours are of creating that resilient type of workplace. Now, what does that look like? The first thing, like I just shared with you, is, is the gratitude piece, being thankful for what people offer and what they bring to the table. But I think also when it comes to resiliency is to create powerful moments for people. Now, what do I mean by that? Like, what happens when we go to work, what happens when we go to the field is it becomes very redundant, right? We, we come in, we punch in, we do the same thing from eight to 12, we eat lunch we, from 12 to one, we come back, we work one to five, we go home. And it's very repetitive. It's very uh, standard day, like nothing changes. Create more impactful moments throughout that day. How do you create more impactful moments? First is you break the script. So that eight to 12 piece, break it up, do something different, have a meeting, have a no, don't just have a meeting just to have a meeting, but have a purpose behind it. Do something different. Go somewhere with your team. Um, that's the first step. Break the script. Second, boost sensory appeal. So I mean by that is hang some stuff up in the office. Like change things up. Change the way that things look. Change the sounds that are going on in there. Put some music on. Spice it up a little bit. Bring in some food, the smell of donuts in the morning. You know how sometimes people that, that get some going or pizza or just something different, boost sensory appeal. That's the second way. And then the third thing to do to create impactful moments is to raise the stakes. So I don't mean just always putting something monetary to a task or just rewarding people with days off, but create competitions within the workplace. Make it, make it different. Spice things up a little bit. I think that these, those three things right there, breaking the script, boosting sensory appeal, and then raising the stakes, if we can do those three types of things, it creates a, a better workplace. It creates a better environment for people. And then it makes you want to come to work. How does that help with the resiliency? If I want to come to work, I'm more able to feel safe. I'm more able to come in and want to do work for this manager, for this employee that's paying me. I think that's, those are three of the biggest things. And as I mentioned there too, with safety, creating a safe environment, I think as managers, 
that's probably one of the most important things that we can do is creating psychological safety for our employees. And by creating psychological safety, I'm talking about a place where we can share ideas and not be shut down. It can be very demoralizing if you come in and you have this really good idea and you think you're going to get it across to the team. And as soon as you pitch it as a man, the manager just shuts you down and says, that's a terrible idea or no, we're not doing that. So as a manager, just be aware of how you're talking to your employees and create that psychologically safe environment. And I experienced that in my career of not having a place where it was psychologically safe to share ideas, to be able to bounce ideas off other people. You felt like you were just basically only there to collect your paycheck and go home. And it wasn't a specific organization. It was before I got really involved with mental skills work, but I just remember how much that weighs on you as an individual of not having that place where you enjoy coming to work and where you can really thrive. So I think as a manager, it's just really important to remember that you are the one that creates that environment and that culture within your organization. Now, yes, I realize you're being told what to do from other people above you, but in your office space, like I said at the beginning of this, control what you can control. And you can control that atmosphere. You can control that safety that other people feel by the feedback that you're giving and by how you're talking to them. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here a little bit. Yep. Okay. So I 100% agree from a managerial standpoint, right? Is that they have to be able to control what they control. But from an employee standpoint, where the culture of a work environment is ever changing. It's always evolving, right? You have new managers, you have new leadership, you have new shareholders, you have all these other things that make the workplace out of control to a certain extent, right? So what can the employee do, or the individual, the human being do to become more resilient so they can adapt to whatever stressors actually given to them within the workplace? Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. And I mentioned before about awareness, being aware of what you're thinking and the traps that you typically fall into as an employee. So we all have different cognitive biases. We all have different um, thinking traps that we fall into. And thinking traps is a term that's coined by Dr. Karen Ravich over at Penn. And these thinking traps are just, when things start to go a little crazy, where, where does your mind typically go? So start to be aware of, okay, when things are out of my control or when things aren't going great, where does my mind typically go? When you can recognize what types of thinking traps that you fall into, that's when you can make, make, start to make changes and that's how you can become more resilient. So for example, one of the thinking traps is um, mind reading. So a mind reader is somebody who thinks that they already know what somebody is going to say or what somebody is going to respond with. So the best example I always give when it comes to mind reading is think about a significant other that you're with. You've been with them for, for years and you go to the grocery store and you come back and you forgot something and that person gets on you and they're like, I, I thought you would have known like we needed eggs last week. Like we ran out. I just assumed you would have known. And then you have a huge fight about it because it's like, I didn't, why did you expect me to know this? Or, that person got in that mind reading, like they, they expected you to know something. How does that apply to the workplace? Sometimes you already think what the manager is going to say to you. Sometimes you think how your employees are, or how your other people that you work with are going to react to something that you're going to do. But that's not always a good thing to do either, because a lot of times you're wrong. A lot of times you, by implying what somebody's going to do, you're putting yourself in a position to 
fail ultimately. So recognizing, okay, I fall into this mind reading thinking trap. What can I do? So as a mind reading thinking trap, it's ask questions. How do you get out of it? You ask people, ask them what they were going to think. So that in that significant other case, Hey, honey, is there anything else that we need from the store in the work environment? Hey, mister, is there anything else that I can do to help my performance or even the people that you work with? Is there anything that anything else that you guys may have noticed that I didn't cover on my presentation by getting out of your traps that you fall into, that'll help you become more resilient because you're being aware and then you're able to bounce back quicker when you ultimately are going to fall back into these traps because we're all going to do it. We're all going to have moments of, of lulls and ups and downs and, and that's just what's going to happen but you have to be able to be aware of it and know how to get out of it and that's going to create that resiliency i think throughout this because let's face it too in, in environments that are tough to work at you can't just quit you might have families to support and kids to feed and i realize that you can't you have to have some sort of resiliency too you have to be able to push through things but there are ways to do it. There's people to talk to. There's ways to get out of these thinking traps. So there are resources out there if you choose to find them. How important is, is physical resiliency and mental resiliency? How well do they work together? I think it's really tough, but I think we have to reframe how we view stress. And that's how we can have a shift psychologically. So as when we're in stressful environments, our heart rate increases, our breathing increases, our palms start to sweat. Like, We've been taught to think that when we start to feel these things that, oh my gosh, like this is bad. Like I'm, I'm starting to feel stressed out. That's what we've been taught for, for years on years. But research by Kelly McGonigal says, let's view stress as a good thing. Let's try to look at stress as instead of, oh my gosh, my heartbeat's picking up. This is bad. Like I'm starting to panic. Let's look at it as, okay, my heartbeat is picking up because it's getting more blood to my muscles to get my body to be able to to physically be ready to perform or my breathing is increasing. Oh my gosh, I'm hyperventilating. No, my breathing is increasing to get more oxygen to my brain, to be able to make better decisions. Try to think of it that way. Instead of just this doom and gloom of, Oh, stress is bad. Stress is good. Stress is our body's way of telling us to get ready for something that we don't know what the outcome is always going to be, but it's our body's way of telling us to be excited. There's other times the stress response is similar to, other responses, when we feel excited, when we feel surprised. And if we look at things a little bit differently, if we just reframe our view of stress and how we do it, I think that would really help with being able to then have that awareness later on. And, but we have to talk about it. We have to, to start to view it that way. So the next time that you start to feel stress or you start to feel that heart rate going a million miles an hour, take a deep breath recognize, hey, this is just my body's way of telling me to get ready. Like, I'm just getting ready for my performance. That's it. Nothing more. That's it. That's really all it can be. And it can be that simple. Is it tough to get into that state and think about it that way? Yeah, of course. But if you start to just become a little bit more aware of it and start to, to train yourself to think that way or have these types of conversations with people about stress or look up a little bit more about it, I think it's one way to go about uh, coping with it a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's an, it's an awesome point because that awareness allows you to interpret it and allows you to use it as um, sort of a benchmark for future events. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. The thing is, Sue, even if you know how to handle stress perfectly, 
doesn't mean it's going to go away. Like we're always going to have stressful situations. We're always going to have something that we feel nervous about or whatever it might be, but don't let that hold you back from, from trying to do something new or trying to take different chances because you can fall into that level of comfortability where it's just, uh, I don't really want to feel stressed here. So I'm just going to stay comfortable doing what I'm doing and, and be good with that. I don't think we grow that way. I don't think we become better as individuals. I think we have to put ourselves in stressful environments to see how we're going to cope with it, to see how we're going to deal with it. And that's how you can ultimately grow and become resilient and become the best version. That's how we become resilient is by Mm -hmm. doing things and being resilient, right? Like by feeling what it's like to know that we can overcome things that continues to build off of that yeah don't be afraid of stress it's it's not a bad thing if if handled properly it's definitely not a bad thing all right fantastic that was great very cool i think we'll probably call it here where can people find more information about you and ultimately how can they work with you so instagram twitter at josh underscore kuzu k-o-z-u-c-h uh also have a youtube channel mental performance coaching with josh kuzu just find me on there and i'd be happy to to work with you guys, either shoot me a message in the DMs or a direct message. Uh, LinkedIn, at Josh Kaju, same thing. Be happy to connect with you guys there. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy to just talk about this stuff. I might not always have the best solutions or the best way to go about things, but what I will do is I'll help you self-discover the answers inside of yourself, what it's going to take for you to become the, be- the best version of yourself whether it's on the field, in the workplace, as a manager, as a leader, as an employee, whatever it is, that, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to work through these things with people and, and share experiences. So yeah, that's probably the best way to, to get a hold of me. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate being on here. Thanks, Brian.